Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. I'm in the problems business. That's what we do here. We look for problems, things that are broken, things that are bad, and then we tell you about them. If things are working well. Uh, if there is no problem, then there probably isn't a news story. There is some talk these days about solutions journalism. News stories that don't just tell you what's wrong, but what we can do to make it all right. I am skeptical of this solutions journalism. Um, skeptical is sort of what we're trained to be in the problems business. You can call me old school. I've always thought that we do our jobs best when we just stick to the problems part and tell you what's broken and... Let somebody else try to fix it. Today's episode is about somebody else who tries to fix it. Cindy Blackstock observed racism her whole life. She worked with indigenous kids in the child welfare system. She saw that it was broken, and then she went about fixing it. This is the story about how she became one of the greatest warriors for indigenous rights. That's right. We're taking a vacation from problems for a week. Our contributing editor, Danielle Paradis, has the story for you in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Terrence Fung, Jessica Reeve, Robert Dutt, Adrian Whiteman, Danny Jackson, Braden Etienne, Michal Zada, 
and JP. This is JP from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. After Jesse vowed to increase Canada Land's climate change coverage, I increased my support. But I've been supporting Canada Land for years because of the great shows that they've had on issues that don't get nearly enough coverage anywhere else. Canada Land Commons in particular. It felt like I was screaming into silence, is the way that I describe it. You know, I don't think I appreciated how normalized the racial discrimination against First Nations children was. And indeed, the, how the propaganda by the government had really led large swaths of the public, and indeed even people in government, to believe that the problem wasn't that these children and their families were getting less in public services across the board. The stereotype said that the problem was that the First Nations weren't using the money properly and that they were the problem. And that's what the issue to be solved. That's what I kept on confronting every time when I would scream into silence. And even within the child rights community, it felt so interesting to me that there was, I'd be in circles and we had a dialogue about important issues like national childcare, which is finally coming to fruition. But I would talk about the fact that we have children who don't even have clean drinking water. And there would be this awkward silence. And then somebody in the group would say, well, yes, that's important consideration. And we'll put it into the child care plan. Like that, it was just kind of like this uncomfortable moment where no one knew how to, how to engage even in a conversation when it was starting. Cindy Blackstock is only 58 years old, but she's been in the public eye for so long, it feels more like she's been around for many lifetimes. Cindy is a social worker and a member of the Gixan First Nation. She is best known as the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. She was also the driving force behind the biggest settlement ever paid out by the Canadian government. Some $20 billion paid to First Nations children and families harmed by chronic underfunding of the child welfare system. And the fight all started in 2007, when Cindy complained to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal alongside the Assembly of First Nations, or AFN, about unequal funding for First Nations children. Cindy called the court case a last resort, as her organization, the Caring Society, and AFN had worked with the federal government and First Nations child welfare experts for 10 years before filing the complaint. They had produced reports with the government on ways to keep First Nations children with their families. Money has always been a key issue here, not just on the lack of money spent on First Nations children in foster care, which is chronically underfunded according to the government's own Auditor General, Amnesty International, and the Assembly of First Nations. The larger problem, however, is the lack of funding given to Indigenous communities at all. In January 2022, three First Nations children died in a house fire at Sandy Lake First Nation. Community officials connect the deaths to woefully insufficient fire and emergency services, saying that a lack of adequate water lines and infrastructure prevented the use of fire hydrants to put out the fire. The first win for Cindy's organization came in 2016 
when the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found that the Canadian government was racially discriminating against 165,000 First Nations children who had been brought through the system over the course of decades. It wasn't until this past January that the federal government finally reached a settlement agreement and put a number on this injustice. It was a $20 billion agreement to compensate kids and their families. Cindy Blackstock's response this July was that her first priority is to ensure that First Nations children and families get the $40,000 they have already won at the Human Rights Tribunal. The deal would pay to children on reserves who were unnecessarily removed from their homes between April 1st, 1991 and March 31st, 2022. Her fight for equity began over 30 years ago as a young woman looking for a way to pay for school. In that time, she has weathered government surveillance and brought about Jordan's principle. Well, I worked, um, this was in northern B.C., and uh, this is another one of the myths, right? The status Indian folks get a free education. Well, I did. There was no money for me, so even though I'm status, so I was working three jobs. And one of the jobs that came open was working in this group home. I didn't know much about what that would be, uh, but when I got there, I saw young people from an age of about twelve to sixteen who had been removed from their families and were being put into this group home as a temporary placement until something else happened. And what struck me was that many of the reasons that they were being placed, I had to ask myself, now, if I was a parent and I was in a community without water and I had black mold housing and I had no money to recover from the trauma residential school in terms of services, how would that affect my care of my kids? Like how much control do these parents actually have over this? What can they actually change, right? Because the Child Welfare codifies this structural discrimination as a parental deficit. And I'm all about holding people speak to the fire for things that they should change for children. I'm not letting people off the hook. But too often what we do is we take our failures of correcting these egregious injustices and say that, the you know, because we don't want to deal with the egregious injustice, we're going to say you're the problem and we're going to try and patch you up. And that just struck me as wrong, right? And I saw the life of young people in foster care. And even when they were in really good placements, it is a very difficult and challenging life, as you well know. So how did Cindy Blackstock become this iconic figure in the fight for Indigenous justice? In a CBC interview with Peter Mansbridge, she talks about how growing up in the 1960s, she noticed that in Canada, Indigenous people were considered less than everyone else. Was there one moment that you can point to that says, that's what helped me focus my mind on the issues that matter? I grew up in the Huckleberry Fields in northern British Columbia in the 1960s, Peter. And I saw racism all around me. I didn't have words for it back then. I just saw that First Nations people were seen to be lesser than everybody else. She watched the civil rights movement in the U.S. and contrasted it with the way Canada declared itself to be generous to First Nations people. She says that as a young kid, she began to internalize that there was something wrong with being First Nations. Her fight to raise awareness is literally a matter of life and death. As Cindy herself says, when the headlines die, 
so do the children. What does she mean by that? She's talking about over a hundred year legacy of neglect of First Nations children. Well, today uh, we're talking in 2022, a hundred years ago in 1922, uh, just a few blocks away from where I'm speaking to you now in Ottawa, Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce published a manuscript called A National Crime. He was the chief medical health inspector in the Indian Department in 1907 and had found that Canada's unequal health care funding and all of the terrible health practices in the schools, including uh, malnutrition, poor sanitation, poor ventilation, all of these things were creating what he called veritable hotbeds of disease, resulting in close to 50% of the children dying with every three years. So he brought back these solutions to fix this, like give them the proper healthcare funding, stop these terrible health practices. You could save these kids' lives, Government of Canada. That would have been Prime Minister Laurie. And the Government of Canada chose not to do it. And he would not be silent. He kept on speaking out. And so his report was leaked to newspapers. Back in 1907, headlines, they're dying like flies, absolute inattention to bare necessities of health. Throughout national papers across the country, people reading it actually felt back then that Canada's behavior could be criminal. And yet it captured the Canadian moral consciousness. But when the headlines died, Canada kept on doing nothing. When Bryce, out of frustration in 1922, publishes a national crime, we see another burst, and the headlines die, and so do the children. And when we filed this human rights case back in 2007 with the Assembly of First Nation, there were headlines about the inequality, and then there was nothing. And sadly, in the next close to a decade, where Canada fought it on legal technicalities, not only did some children die in ways that were linked to this inequality, Others were denied a proper childhood and families were denied an equitable chance to grow up safely together because services to recover from multi-generational trauma to prevent children from going into care were completely absent on the federal system. They weren't paying for any of that. The inequalities were huge and they knew it. That's the other thing. The federal government knows in all of these cases, we're talking about Dr. Bryce or we're talking about the inequalities that fed this case. They knew it. They knew they were underfunding. They didn't disagree with that. They also realized the harms were happening to children and the deaths. They agreed with that. They just chose not to do it. And they were able to keep that choice as long as people were looking the other way. Where all these things come together is in the whole underpinning of the colonialism, which is a savage and civilized dichotomy. And that's where you dehumanize First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. And that dehumanization legitimizes immoral behavior by people who proclaim themselves to be superior. And that allows for dispossession of land, dispossession of resources, dispossession of culture, language, and children. That's the common theme. But it does create all of these hardships across the board. And too often we just focus on the symptom without really going to the cause of the problem, which is this racism that has been enfranchised into the Canadian state. The removal of children from their homes and their placement in residential schools has become a well-known discussion after 215 unmarked grave sites were discovered at a Kamloops Indian residential school. 
Since then, sites across the country have begun to unearth similar stories. Not everyone agrees on what these graves mean, but ask yourself, did you have a graveyard outside your school? In 2008, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper referred to Canada's history with residential schools as a sad chapter in our story. These objectives were based on the assumption that Aboriginal cultures and spiritual beliefs were inferior and unequal. Indeed, some saw it, as was infamously said, to kill the Indian in the child. Today, we recognize that this policy of assimilation was wrong, has caused great harm, and has no place in our country. The 1960s saw a period where the child welfare branch of the federal government took an estimated 20,000 Indigenous children from their families and placed them in foster care. The term 60 scoop was coined in the 1980s by social workers in British Columbia's Department of Social Welfare to describe their own practice of removing children. But it occurred in provinces across Canada. In these instances, both First Nations and Métis children were removed from their homes. Just a few years later, in 1985, a report known as the Kimmelman Report found that there was a systemic bias against Indigenous children and their parents. Why? Well, because when deciding what was best for the child and whether their needs were being met, it was decided using the lens of white, middle-class social workers. The report said changing the way of thinking about a child's well-being was long overdue, but given that these systems were still run by, well, white, middle-class workers, there was a resistance to such a change. Coming of age in the 80s meant that Cindy became aware of this inequality surrounding her as she grew up in BC. When I was uh, working in a group home and then started to see the inequalities driving young people into care. And then I did frontline child protection for 15 years. And I saw it just really dramatically, right? Residential schools were still operating then. And it was just like a factory pushing all of this, this family separation, the trauma. And then when we, we worked nationally on the solutions back in 1997, I was naive enough to think that, oh, they'll fix it if they know about it. And uh, clearly that didn't happen. That led to the 15 years of the case. So, The case she refers to is her human rights complaint and the subsequent settlement agreement. Cindy's fight attracted the notice of the country on and off over the years. But one of the people who paid particular attention was Eleni Obosawin, one of Canada's most distinguished documentary filmmakers and a member of the Abenaki First Nation. She was also a singer at a concert hall in New York in 1960. Well, I'm a filmmaker and uh, I do documentary films about uh, mainly uh, all our people, especially children I'm most interested in. And uh, I've covered uh, many things that happens around uh, Canada over the years, because I've been at it for 54 years. In that time, Eleni said that she has seen a lot of changes in the attention paid to First Nations and Indigenous issues. For example, she's noticing more young people than ever are using video as a way to tell stories. 
These two women had their worlds collide when Eleni heard about Cindy Blackstock and how she was fighting with the government to get equitable funding for First Nations children in foster care. Cindy was on her way to Norway House Cree Nation in central Manitoba. There was an important case brewing involving a young boy named Jordan River Anderson, who had spent the entirety of his life in a hospital. Well, one of the most wonderful times is Jordan's principal, of course, named after Jordan River Anderson, a little baby boy from Norway House who was uh, denied an opportunity to leave the hospital because Canada would not pay for his at-home care. If he was non-Indigenous, he would have been able to leave, and sadly, he dies in a hospital. Well, Jordan's principle is about ensuring all First Nations children get access to the public services they need when they need them. And uh, for years, that passed in the House of Commons in 2007 unanimously, and then the government never implemented it. His family, headed by his father, Ernest Anderson, and um, his sisters and brothers, they've been advocating for Jordan's principle for many years. Finally, after 2017, when the tribunal issued a non-compliance order and Canada started to implement it, there was a conference on Jordan's principle and the family was there. And I asked people, the three, 400 people who were there, I said, can you please stand if you have been touched by Jordan's principle or you know someone who did? And everyone stood. And some of the children who had received those services, tutoring, uh, services for autism, public health services, they were all standing. And the, to see the family, see that physical sign, that was huge. Alani also described this victory as a very important milestone for First Nations people. I went to Norway House, and the first time I did an interview concerning uh, Jordan at the time was in 2010 in Norway House. So then, you know, I was I was very involved in making this series of films that was very important for our history and the protection of our, our rights. And I, I've been um, so, you know, I've been at it for a very long time. And in the early 60s, people were telling me things like uh, saying, uh, did you know that uh, 68% of the people in jail are Indigenous people? For Eleni, the narrative was very familiar. Anyone who was Indigenous who dared to speak out about the issues the government afflicted on First Nations people were heavily criticized. Because of this, she wanted to record the court case. Actually, it all started in 2010 when uh, there was a campaign being done uh, to get a new school in uh, Attawapiskat at that time. And I heard about uh, the concern of Cindy in terms of children's uh, life in, in every way, especially their rights. And so I called her up, and this is how I began to cover all what was happening in court since then. So I've made, uh, about, I think, about seven films concerning the rights of our people. So this is how I watched her. Uh, she's just an incredible hero that we have in this country in terms of uh, fighting for something and uh, go to the end and uh, she knows what she's talking about and the caring is just uh, incredible. We've been filming her a lot in court and I'm always amazed of her reaction and how she's able to when often they're, they're trying to put her down or they're trying to 
you can't do that to her. Like, it's not possible. She's much too clever and a very honest person. And even when uh, people who try to, especially the government, try to put her down or try to show her as if she's not all that great, well, they never succeed. And she's just, uh, it's just amazing. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I'm not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Eleni released a movie called We Can't Make the Same Mistake Twice. She applied for and got permission to record the proceedings. Good morning, tribunal members. What a great honor to stand on the lands of the Algonquin Nation. This very country is named Canada. It's a gift of First Nations people to their land and to all Canadians. And it means village. But for far too long, there's been two villages in this great nation. One for all other children and one for the First Nations children who have called this land home for thousands of years. This case, this moment, is for the children. And they really, really tried to smear Cindy. APTN reported that 189 federal employees spied on her. In 2009, Cindy Blackstock filed a complaint alleging that because of her human rights complaint, the government had attempted to retaliate against her. Section 14.1 of the Canadian Human Rights Act calls retaliation due to a complaint a discriminatory practice. The way Cindy sees it is that prior to filing the lawsuit against the federal government, 
She had lots of expert consulting work, but after the lawsuit was filed, it dried up. Another part of Cindy's complaint told the story of how she had once been invited by the chiefs of Ontario to attend a meeting with them and the then Minister of Indigenous and Northern Affairs, Chuck Straw. This is the story that is told in the pages of the Human Rights Tribunal's decision. Upon arrival at the minister's office building, Dr. Blackstock, along with the 10 to 14 other individuals accompanying Grand Chief Phillips, proceeded through security and took the elevator to the floor of the minister's office. There, they sat and waited in the reception area, outside of the meeting room. The minister's special assistant, David MacArthur, appeared and, following a brief discussion with Grand Chief Phillips regarding the number of delegates, proceeded to allow the delegates to enter the meeting room one by one, greeting them individually as they went in. When it was Dr. Blackstock's turn to enter the room, Mr. MacArthur asked her to identify herself. When she did, he blocked access to the room, stating, We'll meet with you another time. I understand that you have a number of issues and we'll meet with you another time. But Cindy's complaint didn't end there. She also described how government officials were monitoring her on social media and at her in-person talks. After being barred from the meeting, she filed an FOI for records about herself under the Privacy Act. In 2014, news stories circulated about the complaint filed by Cindy Blackstock regarding the government departments surveilling her Facebook, an investigation by the Federal Privacy Commissioner, Jennifer Stodart, in 2013, found that the Department of Aboriginal Affairs had overstepped by monitoring and saving posts from Cindy's personal Facebook account. As for the complaint Cindy had made about government officials monitoring her by attending sessions where she spoke to the public, this was not found to be an invasion of privacy. Despite all of this, Cindy remains undaunted in her search for justice for First Nations children in care. She says she is motivated to keep going because she wants the kids to know that there is someone out there fighting for them, so that they know someone believes they are worth the effort. Alani says Cindy is a rare gift to have. I think uh, she's gone through a lot herself as a young person, and she worked as a social worker, and she saw all the injustice and she discovered how badly our people were treated, and she decided that she was going to do everything to change that. It's her mission. It's just incredible. I often call her for all kinds of things. I want to make sure of certain uh, things. And uh, she's teaching at McGill sometimes, and we could try to get together. And I just, uh, I just keep discovering an extraordinary quality that she has all the time. We're very lucky to have a person like that in our world. And there's a, a bonus that we made for some of the films in court that we shot in these last 10 years, and it's called Retaliation. And it's a bonus, and it's only Cindy. It is, wait till you see it. It's just so incredible. She's so unbelievable. Even if I would try to make a fiction like that, it would never be this good. It was just uh, her expression and how she answered, and she's so smart. And it's hurtful at times, you know, you say to yourself, my God, that, that's nasty what uh, they're trying to do to her. But uh, she's stronger than all of them. So it's, uh, it's very special. Cindy isn't the sort of person who focuses on herself. 
she's motivated by the children and families she's met. Yeah, well, it's an optimism. And I also think, well, what's the other choice? The other choice is to say, this is never going to change. And what is the message that sends to children and young people? That they're not worth the effort. And I thought, you know, I, I never knew all the, all this 15 years, what would happen with this. But the one message I wanted to show them through my behavior, not by making statements, is that I love them enough to stand with them. And I'll never give up on them. For someone who has been fighting for so long for First Nations children, she is a relentlessly optimistic person as well. But she has also felt discouraged, especially with the length of time it has taken to get the government to act. What was really discouraging, I think, was the waiting. Seeing Canada fight this on technical grounds, on the jurisdiction, and seeing that the courts had to deal with that versus dealing with what to me was the essential matter, which is that these are young people and children in real time that are being told, no, you're not worth the money or you don't get that service because of who you are. But then I had to ask myself, what is what is the answer to that? Um, do you just give up and get frustrated and get angry? and Or do you actually just use that as a fuel to press even harder? And But to press in a way that brings dignity to those children and families. I've always tried to say, um, I want to try and conduct myself in a matter that brings them dignity. As for her goals, what Cindy wants most is for First Nations children to be able to be children, to dream, to run, to play. My goal is full culturally based equity. I am not interested in just uh, partial, partial equality. These kids deserve to dream about becoming an astronaut or an engineer or a carpenter or a uh, knowledge keeper or a teacher. Um, I don't want them to have to grow up and dream about a clean glass of water in this country. That is your Canada Land for the week. If you like this show, please support us, canadaland.com slash join, or click the link in the show notes. It's kind of neat. You just press a button, and then you're paying us a little bit of money every month for premium podcasts. Please do that. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read all of the emails you send. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Follow us there. Our website is canadaland.com, where you can check out our politics show, The Backbench. This week... Boy, is it hot out. So host Fatima Sayed asks Canada's federal environment commissioner about the government's plans to fight climate change. The pattern has been kind of interesting. Essentially, a plan is created, and as it gets closer to that due date for it, attention diverts to a new, better plan. And then we have this cycle. We're always thinking about what's coming next, but not reminding Canadians that we failed on the previous one. Sounds like a plan. To hear the rest of Fatima Sayed interviewing Jerry DeMarco, the Commissioner of the Environment, subscribe to the Backbench right now. You'll want to hear that full episode. This episode was produced and reported by Danny Paradis. It's Danny's last piece for us as a Canada Land contributing editor. She's taken a reporting job with APTN. 
It has been wonderful working with Danny and publishing her work. We are sad to see her go, but we are so glad that she will be producing journalism full time with APTN. We will be following it and everybody else out there should too. Thank you for everything, Danny. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Our syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like this show, here's how it happens. We've got a unique model. I don't think anybody else in the country is doing podcast journalism this way from direct listener support. That's how it gets done. Please join us. We're doing something interesting here. Canadaland.com slash join or click on the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.